Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, depending on where you are on this fast forward planet, which is wrapped in all kinds of turbulence, um, societal, ecological, climatological, and I try to untangle little bits of it as much as I can using conversations on this platform, which started early in the pandemic. I've now done 460 or so. I should actually look back and... <laughs> One thing, I, one comp, one concept, one thing I focus on is uh, the role of innovation and social innovation in driving progress. And I was fascinated when at um, the GLEX, the Global Exploration Summit in June in the Azores, I met Nathan Robinson, who's a biologist who uh, had ended up with, through working with uh, my other guest, Edie Vitter, who's a biologist, neuroscientist, uh, conservationist in Florida uh, who, who's been on several TED talks and the like together and with others they have figured out ways to make the visible the invisible visible and in this case the invisible is one of the stealthiest and most magnificent creatures on the planet the giant squid um, Nathan you had given a talk that I don't think is yet online but mesmerized me and, and my wife and others about your your role in all of this. Um, so let's just talk a little bit about how this came about, uh, what your goals are going forward, you know, why giant squid matter. I found this, this is a Library of Congress collection image uh, from a book. I didn't have time to look up the book, it, but it says a lot about this species, uh, which has been part of mythology for, in many societies, ocean-faring societies for a long time. Uh, I'll start out with one little anecdote. Um, when I, in the early 90s, I was working uh, on a book that has not yet come to pass uh, about uh, a native Canadian tribe, the Heisla. I was living in uh, British Columbia with um, an elder who told me when he was a kid, he told me this really in interesting anecdote. And this is on one of those big channels that, on British Columbia, way up north of um, Vancouver, uh, way up the coast. He was standing, uh, walking by the beach, and he looked out and there was this epic uh, surging uh, volcano of water and tentacles and orca. And he was looking at a battle between an orca and a giant squid. And uh, it went on for a while and uh, he ended up with a, a piece of the tentacle, one of the tentacles washed on the beach and he brought it home and his mom cooked it into a soup. <laughs> oh, I bet it was awful. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, actually, I didn't ask about that, but... But you know that that got to my attention as a as a young journalist uh, at the time. This is a long time ago, and and they, they mostly seem to come in these little uh, you know moments like that, usually in when they're dead or or the like. So let's just start briefly, um, Nathan, because you you were my entree to this. Maybe you could start briefly by saying what what's been your journey that brought you to this question. You know, how did you become who you are so far when it comes to looking deep in the ocean for mysterious things. <laughs> oh, oh, thanks for the wonderful introduction. And I mean, a huge amount of the inspiration, I guess, as to why I'm following this track now in this research field really goes to Edie. Um, so a huge thank you has to get sent that way. And specifically on the giant squid, I had a bit of a kind of like roundabout route of, I started doing deep sea research as a student doing masters, and then really found my passion in ocean uh, well, conservation, specifically in sea turtle conservation. Um, and after several years working in sea turtles, I started realizing that, I mean, I was putting uh, almost kind of 15 years of my life working on sea turtle nesting beaches to protect nesting females from um, raise, rising tides, from developments, from um, kind of poaching, from predation, all these things. And I started, I had a kind of aha moment halfway through my career where I started realizing that some of the stuff I was putting online was arguably having a bigger impact than my hard work on the beach. And it was all to do with giving people the, the information to conduct meaning social change. And the video that you can see right now of myself removing a straw was kind of like the exemplar of that. Found a sea turtle with a straw lodged in its nose. The video of that, which was recorded by a friend of mine, Chris Figuerner, went crazy viral online. And 
overnight you started seeing people signs everywhere saying no straw please restaurants are no longer giving up plastic straws <clears throat> and i started following this kind of direction of trying to collect more videos uh that could both answer important ecological questions but get people engaged in the ocean i really think if we want to fix the damage that we're currently causing we need to get people from all walks of life engaged in ocean conservation it's something that we can all play a role in and uh fortunately enough i was working in the bahamas at the time i was the director of the research director of cape luthera uh institute uh, a research center in the bahamas and Edie had actually stored one of her cameras at the same school <laughs> as me. And then through kind of several conversations, we, uh, thanks to another incredible scientist, Ed Brooks, I was invited to join Edie on a mission in the Gulf of Mexico. And it was this wonderful gelling of the things that interest me, like deep sea science. It was my original love, like crazy footage that has the potential to answer important questions and get people excited and kind of just fun science at, at sea. And Edie and I joked, I remember uh, being in Edie's house learning kind of when we were repairing the camera and Edie kind of was saying like, you know, we might film a giant squids on the next expedition. And we both kind of literally kind of like chuckled about it. And then I didn't actually know at that time that this camera, the Medusa was the camera that had filmed the original giant squid. And I had this kind of mind blowing moment of being obsessed as a kid with the giant squid, um, that this might be real, but it was still a bit of a joke. I mean, so few people, so few people in this world have filmed it that, that yeah, there was the chance, but we never really, I don't know, personally, I never really thought it was going to happen. Um, <laughs> but then we had this wonderful moment where we went out there after reviewing kind of Edie and I about 120 hours of footage, deploying this camera at various depths, there was that insane moment where, like, I don't know, it's kind of like reality kind of turns around and slaps you in the face when we realized we had just filmed the second ever footage of a giant squid, both times with the exact same camera system, both thanks right. to Edie. And that's kind of what got us working together. And, uh, and then we've been going strong ever since. So cool. And Edie, uh, again, you, you have a long history of questing for such things and, and using um, your understanding of both neuroscience and, uh, you know, ecology and behavior to get to get the pictures. So, uh, but you're, you're, you're involved in much more. We're going to talk about Team Orca as well, because I think it's really important the work you're doing in Florida and elsewhere. So what, you know, can you do the thumbnail? sketch of what brought you to this kind of question starting with your your neuroscience background what, how did it end up in this arena so i did my phd on a bioluminescent dinoflagellate and i was recording the action potential that triggers the flash and the fact that it made light was interesting but not the point of my research um but i naturally got more and more interested in bioluminescence and uh my my major professor was brilliant at getting funding and he got a huge grant for the latest and greatest spectrometer. And I've always been a gadget freak. And this new piece of equipment came into the lab and I couldn't keep my hands off it. And, um, at some point he comes to me and he says, well, now that you can make this thing do what we need done, I think we need to start sending you to sea to measure all these animals in the ocean that make light that nobody's ever been able to measure before. And suddenly I was this thing I had always dreamed of being like Nathan. I wanted to be a seagoing marine biologist, but nobody gets to do that. And, and I was going to get to do that and go out on these missions where we were trawling for animals and bringing them up. But we were, had an unusual trawl net that allowed us to uh, very often bring the animals up alive. Um, and see their light shows like this. You're, you're seeing a, um, a sea pen hmm. being. Um, just brilliant, and you're seeing it, it's neurobiology in action. Um, and uh, I, you know, I was enthralled. And then, because of that, I got an opportunity to make a series of dives in a diving suit called Wasp that was developed for the offshore oil industry for diving on oil rigs, and was being tested as a tool for exploring this largest, most unexplored habitat on the planet, the open ocean. You go down to 2,000 feet. And uh, 
you know, it was, it was just an incredible experience. And my very first dive was a training dive in the Santa Barbara channel at night. And I went down to 800 feet, which was just mind blowing for somebody that had been scuba diving no deeper than 90 feet. Uh, and I, I uh, knew I would see bioluminescence, but I just was completely unprepared for this breathtaking, unbelievable light show that I saw when I turned out the lights. Mm. It was like, I describe it as like being in the middle of Vincent van Gogh's starry night in three dimensions, you know, just all this light swirling around me and different shades of blue and squirting and flashing. And, and it was miraculous. And then you turn on the lights and there's almost nothing visible out in out there in the water column. And I, I knew how much energy it took to make that kind of light. And I, mm. this has got to be really important. Why aren't more people paying attention to it? And it changed the course of my career because at that point, I actually had a postdoc lined up in Madison, Wisconsin to go on in neurobiology. And based on the experience of that dive, I turned that postdoc down and I've been... <laughs> hunting bioluminescence in the ocean of the So it was actually my, my search for bioluminescence and understanding of its uses by animals in the ocean that actually led to the giant squid filming because that's, I'm not a giant squid hunter. That was not my focus. Yeah. But I would spend all this time in submersibles and just think about all these animals that were just beyond the range of my lights that could see me, but I couldn't see them because we were scaring them away. So how could I possibly ever see them? And so I developed this camera system, the first version of which was called the Eye in the Sea. It was a battery powered camera, but it used red light, which turned out to be very tricky to do. And I had to imitate a certain type of bioluminescent fish um, and get the same kind of light, red light that it uses to be able to see without being seen. And the first time I tested that was also in the Gulf of Mexico, way before Nathan came on the scene. That was back mm -hmm. in 2004. And um, first time we put it down. With I put it down on the bottom, red light illumination. And I had invented this optical lure that was uh, an imitation of a very um, common deep sea jellyfish that produces this pinwheel of light that just goes round and round and round. And um, I you know, wanted to see how animals reacted to it. And I swear this is true. 86 seconds after I turned it on for the very first time, we recorded a squid completely new to science. It was over six feet long. And in many ways to me, it was, it would be, it was even more exciting than when we first saw the giant squid, <laughs> because it, this was something big that nobody had ever seen before. And it, it's just such an indication of how so ex explored our own planet that there are these giant creatures living in the ocean that, you know, we don't know anything about. And the giant squid we've known about for years because they happen to float when they die. What about the stuff that doesn't float like that first squid that we saw? And so um, I gave a uh, TED talk on um, Mission Blue and um a giant squid hunter was in the audience. Uh, he was also one of the speakers, Mike Degree. And he went crazy when he saw my video of these squid attacking my electronic jellyfish, which you, you've got on the screen there. Right. You can see what a shoestring operation it was because you can still see the word Ziploc in the, <laughs> in the uh, epoxy mold that we used <laughs> to cast uh, LEDs in. And, uh, he wanted to know, you know, do you think this would work for giant squid? And I said, well, I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, definitely. Cause they're visual predators. You don't have a, the largest eye in the animal kingdom unless you're using it to see stuff. And the only thing we're seeing at the depths they inhabit is bioluminescence. So I think it might. And so he got me invited on this very major expedition off Japan in 2012, very expensive endeavor. And that's where we got the first video ever recorded of a giant squid in its natural habitat. And it, you know, it went viral. Um, 
And then this, the next time a giant squid was recorded was the expedition that Nathan came on in 2019 using the same camera system. We put it out and this time we got even more footage because we got the giant squid actually stalking the e-jelly which for over six minutes. It was, I mean, right. there was actual controversy about whether giant squid were truly visual predators, but not after that video was shot. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, th I think I want to show that the more recent one because it's quite something. Um, and I back in 2012, I did write about for the for the New York Times. I wrote a piece about the uh, that ex that show. So here's the one. I think this is the more recent one, right? Yes. Yes. And there, it's just talk about what we're seeing here. That. Yeah, it, it, this is after it had been stalking it for six minutes. It comes in, kind of. So the white thing in the front is a bait bag, and then the e jelly is behind it. Um, but, and what was the scale? What's the scale there? Well, we, we it took us a while to figure it out, but we th we think that that was probably about an eighteen footer, right? Yeah, we. So Edie has some really good idea. We know the size of that e jelly, the device right. with the pinwheel. So there's a moment in a second where the squid was kind of had one arm reaching out, like hanging on to the um, e jelly, but it's holding relatively straight. So we can use a bit of perspective calculations to estimate the length of the squid. Right. And we put it somewhere, yeah, 18 foot, somewhere between, I think, four to six meters was like our, our error range, which still makes it a juvenile, but still makes it huge at the exact same time. Right. Extraordinary. Um, and there was something, I think, which uh, mission was it where the idea of silence, the sounds, uh, the sound of the actual devices, the sound of submersibles versus ROVs uh, and how that could either attract or repel things you were looking for, ED. I think you mentioned well, one of your talks. I was struck by how noisy um, some systems are, especially the um, hydraulics on uh, a lot of ROVs, and recorded some of that sound. Um, and I mean, it just absolutely screams, just screams. And no, uh, um, giant squid don't have ears per se but they can detect vibration in the water and mm. so you've got to think that you know they're shy they're i mean they've been depicted as monsters for for <laughs> centuries but they're right. actually quite shy uh, unlike humble squid which are you know smaller but um far far more aggressive and really, like giant squids i mean they're huge they're getting to these massive sizes uh, so I think the largest they've ever recorded was 12 meters, but say two to three meters. So six to nine foot of that is the, the body of the squid and the rest of that is all tentacle. And they're not really, say the apex predator in the ocean. I mean, sperm whales, lots of deep diving whales all the way around the world have huge amounts of giant squids in their stomach. So the giant squids, yeah, it's probably a relatively ferocious predator for the smaller squid or maybe even some of the smaller fish that might be eating. But it's not this, like, dominating the ocean, pulling vessels to its depth, uh, for, like, kind of, like, yeah, mariners to their depth that it's been portrayed to be just because of how it looks. Uh, so, yeah, from our footage, and you can see how quickly that animal comes in. Like I said, as Edie was saying, it doesn't immediately come in and kind of destroy the baits. It, kind of there's this long period where you can just see it in the background kind of literally just waving following that moving bait yeah. making up its mind of whether it wants to attack then it's leaked off into the distance it came back again repeated on the third time it finally attacked but you can almost see it wraps its tentacles around and the second it's like mm, i don't like this it's off it's right. not hanging around it's not can't cause any damage it really has this this air of quite like a shy timid animal mm. This was the uh, a portion of the video that was released in 2012, I believe. Mm. Uh, actually, this, was was able... this was the mo moment when it came in for a full-blown attack. Yeah, <laughs> and that's uh, just something to see, boy. And then we filmed it from the submersible, which is us. So this is a, a different camera system that was on the sub, but we were using the same principle of using red light illumination and a, a low light sensitive camera but we had a bait squid out in front of the sub. And so when the giant squid started um, uh, feeding on the bait squid, uh, Kubadera, who was the scientist in the sub at the time, 
risk turning on the lights and the squid didn't bolt. I mean, when you find food in the deep sea, you hang on. Oh, that's interesting. And so we got this high resolution, just exquisite video. And it was so different than any of us expected because the dead specimens are red. Right. And in, in, uh, under, um, full white light, it looked like a it would kind of shift between brushed aluminum and bronze. Just, yeah. just an astonishing creature. And look at that eye. I know it's, it's, it's really, uh, I mean, taking my, taking myself to this, this space where you, where this was done, thinking about the submersible, you know, being in an environment like that, even, even if, even if it's just an ROV, but being, you know, being in the environment in a submersible with this kind of uh, scale of mystery creatures, just quite something to contemplate. Well, one, one of the things we actually had discussions about was what were our risk factors with the sub if the, if the giant squid glommed onto the sub and held on, it could theoretically pull us below our crush depth, which is why we operated with, we were operating on a tether, which actually made me more nervous than um, the giant squid because I could just see all kinds of ways that that could turn into a cluster. But we didn't, um, and uh, uh, you know it, it all worked out in the end. But um, yeah, there were a lot of unknowns. Amazing. So Nathan, uh, take 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 us to something you described um, in the Azores at the Global Exploration Summit. You, you had also separately gone to the Southern Ocean on a commercial mm -hmm. vessel um, for a squid species that's distinct from this one. Can you talk about that? Yes, definitely. Um, so after we had the success in the Gulf of Mexico, I guess two big things happened. Firstly, we redesigned the camera system. So we built a brand new camera system. The old one that recorded the original footage that you've been sharing was called the Medusa. Our new upgraded system is called the Angler. And it's basically everything the Medusa does, but better. Smaller, higher resolution camera, lower intensity lights. So even leaning harder into that idea of stealth. And uh, we had a wonderful opportunity to head to the Southern Ocean. And the reason we wanted to be down there in the waters of Antarctica is because the giant squids has a pretty impressive name. There's another even larger squid out there called the colossal squid. Um, it goes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're, at some point they're gonna run out of adjectives, but um, it, this one can grow to 14 meters in length, so it's a little bit larger than the giant squid, but it's much heavier, like a much chunkier animal. In fact, they're very distantly related. Um, the colossal squid, even though it's uh, enormous, the biggest invertebrate on the, on the planet, is closely related to these little species of glass squid that you see often around the ocean. But it's this very kind of heavy-bodied animal, uh, several other differences between them, but they both share that immense size. Um, and they're only found in the waters of Antarctica, which kind of is one of the reasons why, much like giant squid was for so long, um, the colossal squid still hasn't been filmed alive at depth. Yeah, exactly. You can see how much heavier the body of the colossal it's squid is. Pretty remarkable looking, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so we spent we collaborated with a deep sea fishery that fishes toothfish. And the reason we were collaborating with them is because toothfish are both prey and predators of colossal squid. When large toothfish encounter a small colossal squid, they'll eat it and vice versa. Uh, we know this because when people are hunting for toothfish, fishing for toothfish, they'll often find remnants of colossal squid's uh, tentacles and beaks in their stomach but also, we often find lots of scars from colossal squids and even bite marks on colossus, on, sorry, bite marks from colossal squid on toothfish caught in these lines. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we spent three months out there. We collected, it was in total, around 500 hours worth of footage. Um, well, it was three months around, the, uh, around Antarctica and then another month, month and a half around uh, South Sandwich Islands. Um, but unfortunately, due to a couple of instances, um, 
we weren't able to, we still haven't filmed the Colossal Squid. So one of our next big goals is to go out there and kind of start to unlock the mystery of this animal. Uh, Edie can talk more about how, say, the coloration of the giant squid didn't match up with what they expected it to look like. And we've also spoken about how the behavior of this animal was up for debate and wasn't what we expected it to be. Now, what may happen when we find the colossal squid is the same thing all over again. We might discover that this animal behaves or looks in a different way that we've realized before, and that might start to unlock the role that the biggest invertebrate in this planet, an incredible apex predator in, right. the, uh, in the Arctic, is playing in those ecosystems. Yeah, boy, the uh, Antarctica and Antarctic uh, ocean ecosystems have come into uh, focus recently as um, fisheries, and actually, where 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 human fisheries are now competing with resurgent whale populations. For example, I don't know if you both have tracked. Uh, actually, Sea Shepherd is out. The, you know, the the Japanese whaling uh, effort seems to be ebbing, but now we have these giant commercial vessels. Um, targeting uh, krill even as resurgent populations of blue whales and fin whales are going after the krill um, uh, i don't know Edie, do, do you think about those those large-scale questions as you pursue this these kinds of questions oh very much i i mean it, it's just astonishing what we've been doing to the ocean and it, it it's all backwards because our history as a species is exploration followed by exploitation but in the case of the ocean, we've done it in the reverse order. We've actually managed to exploit the ocean before we've explored it. Mm. So we, you know, we drag these nets big enough to hold jumbo jets through the ocean, just scarfing up everything in it, in the in its path. We, you know, at the same time as we're pulling out every last fish and shrimp, we're filling it with our toxins and pollutants and poisoning ourselves and our life support systems. It's incredible. It was one of the things that blew me away. Uh, I, I don't think it really, I don't think I really realized what was going on until I went on this, this fishing vessel into the middle of Antarctica, where about as far away from, I mean, it took us a month just to get to the spot where we started fishing. We left from Uruguay, like traveled the whole way down Southern America, uh, South America, uh, and then headed into the Ross Sea. And then it was busy. We arrived and there was boats, we could see boats all over the place. And you kind of think like the, the audacity of, of us, of humans, right, to want to go to some of the most remote, inaccessible waters. We had to travel through like 10 meter, like 30 foot waves to get there. Uh, we're going to these absolutely pristine habitats, so remote. And it used to blow my mind that we're doing this just to have a slightly different tasting fish. Yeah. Like this is the the fish where they're eating, at least the toothfish. Quill is slightly different because quill is often used as kind of fish protein. Right, right, but exactly. Specifically in regards to say the toothfish we're fishing down there, it's a relatively high-end product. And it just blows my mind to think the extent that humans are willing to do to exploit resources at the edge of the planet uh in our pursuit of yeah like i said a slightly different tasting fish is is mind-boggling i just want to show you there's a paper that really struck me uh, this just came out this earlier this year commercial krill fishing within within a foraging supergroup of fin whales in the southern ocean it was an observation made by uh scientists who were uh in the region and serendipitously they saw this uh, simultaneous harvest of krill by 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 the the whales that we had almost uh, wiped out now coming back slowly and mm. commercial vessels um, it just um, and as you say this is the uh, the ends of earth, literally the ends of the earth um, thankfully there's good journalism happening in this arena too it's really hard for the both the journalism and surveillance by groups like sea shepherd but uh, the uh, the um, uh, outlaw ocean uh, work of uh, my friend Ian Urbina. You know he's out there with a team now, a global team, really trying to get at this uh, outside national boundary effort. So much of which feels like uh, you know there are loose ways to try to govern it, but it's really tough. 
Mm-hmm. You know, there's no, there's no policing of it at all. And then so much of the damage that's being done, for example, to the bottom of the ocean with bottom trawling and now potentially with mining, um, it, it just goes on out of sight and out of mind. Oh yeah. We haven't talked about seabed mining. <laughs> that's yet another, uh, uh, happy topic. Yeah. I guess the econ- economics and, and the other issues will determine whether that happens almost more than, uh, than law in the sense that, um, Luckily, it seems like lithium, cobalt, some of those materials that are considered so rare are now being found with, with more abundance outside the seabed. We'll see. Obviously, it's a tough time. Edie, t- tell us a little bit about your conservation work and your other work that you do through Team Orca, which I think is as important as these questions in the far-flung parts of the ocean. So I came to Florida in 1989 to work at Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institution because they had the finest submersibles in the world at that time for um, uh, midwater research of the kind that I was doing. Um, But then uh, around 2004, they were starting to wind down their program. They were going to shut down their submersible program. So I was looking to move on. And, you know, the question was where. But at the same time, I was watching the collapse of the Indian River Lagoon estuary, which I had been living on since 1989. And... Mm kind of this magic place. I mean, you know, we have a deep water dock that manatees come up to. Um, so it was a, you know, a, just an exquisite place, but it's collapsing. And I decided maybe it was time to give back to the ocean. Um, and so uh, I was, I think, pretty naive about what I was undertaking, which is how things often get done. But there, you know, there were a couple of reports that come out that Pew Oceans Commission report in 2003, the U.S. Commission on Ocean Policy report in 2004, calling for adman- for more advanced monitoring. And a lot of my career has been working with engineers to solve challenges like that. And I thought, oh, well, that's something I could do. Now, usually when you have a presidential commission report like that, the point is then to fund what the report suggests needs to be done. And the primary thing they were suggesting was advanced real-time monitoring. So I started ORCA with developing this water quality monitoring system that we call Kilroy because uh, we want it to be everywhere. Of course, then I have to explain to kids who the hell Kilroy was, but <laughs> it's kind of a good idea at the time. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I actually, I, I wouldn't have even succeeded ex- uh, because uh, when the bottom fell out of everything in 2008, any hope for funding something like that was pretty much gone. I I got a MacArthur Fellowship and was able to put the money into completing the Kilroys. Um, So we have the largest real-time monitoring network in the Indian River Lagoon, a 156-mile-long estuary Mm. that, uh, you know, we've got them in all of the major canals and tributaries that feed into the lagoon so we can track and we measure something like 33 different environmental variables. so um, the complexity of what we're trying to figure out, though, is kind of staggering because there's just yeah. every every spot on the lagoon seems to have a different pollution problem. And every every year a new one pops up. So now we're dealing with um, these forever chemicals, which, right. you know, are just a, a new challenge to try to deal with and trying to figure out where the pollution is. Um, I ended up kind of circling back to my roots with bioluminescence because what I was looking for was you don't want to test for everything. You can't. It's too expensive, um, time-consuming, whatever. Uh, So I was looking for a broad-spectrum bioassay, and there was this assay called Microtox that uses bioluminescent bacteria. Um, But it had been tried on sediment testing and hadn't worked very well, and um, we had a scientist here, Dr. Beth Falls, who adapted it to use on sediment testing. And so we were able to start creating pollution maps that are like weather maps, but red is toxic and blue is non-toxic. Mm-hmm. And that actually proved very informative about where some of the problems were coming from. Places that I that were surprising to me, for example, grass clippings are a much bigger problem than I ever could have imagined. That's so interesting. 
Yeah, there. I mean, but you ask an organic farmer, they can tell you grass clippings make great fertilizer. And we've got oh, in Florida, we've got all of this landscaping with these sloping grass lawns right down to the edge of uh, the water to the seawall. And then the yard crews will actually sometimes blow the grass clippings into the water. So that pollution map that you see there, right on the left hand side there, these these finger canals that are very typical Florida landscaping, and they fill up with pollution. In this case, that's the nutrient pollution that you're seeing there. Right. Um, but, you know, we were also able to look at um, toxicity using the um, microtox assay and uh, found a couple of instances where um, the canals were relatively clean, which was surprising because those canals happen to be right next to a golf course. And golf courses usually get blamed for a lot of pollution. So I, I went and talked to them and said, what are you guys doing? <laughs> and they they bagged all of their grass, grass clippings. They used a low-dose organic fertilizer. They didn't poison any of their water hazards. They let um, water plants grow in the water hazards. So, you know, it ended up being a good story instead of a bad story. And we can make a difference. We just have to figure out how to work with nature instead of against it. Boy. And in Florida, I mean, I've written a lot about Florida over the years. You have so many pressures. Oh, the demographics are so against us. That was that took me a little while to figure out why this was so difficult. But we have this snowbird population that are gone for the summer. And they're not here when the worst toxic algae blooms are happening and the fish kills. And then when they are here, they, they're... De their devotions are still up north when when they're down here they just want to relax they don't want to hear about environmental problems <laughs> that's, so that's so interesting uh yeah it's 900 a day i think people are still moving into florida i've written about this in the context of uh, hurricane risk you, you know people move in they don't understand the history florida has a deep profound history of being a target for hurricanes period my, my parents lived in stewart uh, one reason they yeah. ended up leaving Florida late in, the, in life was uh, they had three strikes on Stewart in one year. And uh, <laughs> they thought, you know, this is not sustainable. But a lot of people seem to like the upside of Florida enough that many things that aren't sustainable seem tolerable. And, and I just feel that must be really hard to, uh, to deal with as scientists sometimes. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, trying to overcome things like these seawalls that, you know, we'd be so much better off if we could place it, replace them with living shorelines, with mangroves and um, uh, have healthy seagrass beds and all of these things that would secure the, the shoreline and protect us from storm damage and also filter the pollutants coming off the land. We see a huge, huge difference in our pollution maps and where, um, you know, you see a lot of pollution next to a seawall and very clean looking um, areas along where there's mangroves because they are filtering out the pollutants. Right. Well, hopefully this, uh, I think you're also very involved with education as well. And obviously, Nathan, maybe we'll cap out this the next few minutes talking about public communication and, uh, and education, uh, um, citizen science. Uh, or Edie, my, my wife used to work for an organization called um, the Children's Environmental Literacy Foundation, which was really misnamed. They basically teach teachers how to teach sustainability. And a big focus of that group in the last decade has been what they call civic science, which to me takes a, a little notch above. Citizen science can just be like taking pictures and mm -hmm. putting them in a database. Civic science is making a difference, you know, bringing that information into the public sphere, whether it's zoning meetings or uh, town councils or uh, what, what, you know, so kids in uh, urban areas are, are measuring air pollution using little meters and they're, they're becoming part of the conversation. So, so, uh, and Nathan, you, you talked about the, the straw video, you know, mm -hmm. led you in a new direction. So when you think about that, um, stuff what excites you now as as a path something that wouldn't have been possible you know we think about TikTok and the like often disparagingly but 
Maybe Nathan a little bit and then back to you, Edie. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, tools like social media are not a kind of panacea to the world's problems, and they come with a lot of downsides. But one of the things that is incredible uh, in so many different ways about social media is how it connects everyone. How We now live in a world where an idea, an event, whether it's a dance craze on TikTok or whether it's a straw in a seatel's nose, can go can spread to every corner of the planet in minutes. Right. Which, uh, once again, is not doesn't fix all our issues, but the speed at which we can communicate to address problems, to engage people, to get people excited about concepts, ideas, conservation, is exponentially changed in the last couple of decades. It's like it's a whole different ballgame now. And I think part of that is why as well there's an increased excitement in things like citizen science, civic science, which I think is an amazing concept, um, and all these things. Because I think there's a huge amount of people out there who want to be involved, who are now better educators. Uh, one thing I often tell people in the kind of science communication game is I actually think, sometimes we think that science communication is about, say, spreading information about uh, the downside of climate change, um, oh, sorry, the downside of kind of plastic pollution, the impacts of climate change, um, whether we need to be, how we need to be fishing sustainably and, or, and how to fish sustainably. And one of the things I often tell people is I actually think the science communication world in general, thanks to things like TikTok and Instagram and Facebook and YouTube, has done such a good job that the world is largely educated now on like almost everyone knows what climate change is. Almost everyone knows that plastic pollution is bad. What we need to convince people now is why we need to do something about fixing these issues and how to do something about fixing these issues. But even on that sense, I think we're doing a great job with a lot of people. That's why so many people want to be part of the, the solution. They want to go out there and measure uh, say air pollution in different areas. They want to start collecting, taking photos of different or random species they find in their garden because they think they're novel and it might actually be an invasive species or a range expansion of a different species. Uh, I think it's a wonderful time to start to use these tools to engage people and for, once again, not saying that these tools are all good, but for the good that we can get out of these tools right. as, as a scientist, I think, I honestly think we're often doing ourselves a disservice if we kind of lock ourselves in our ivory towers and we turn our noses up at things like TikTok and stuff like that, we're losing out on an incredible tool that we could be using to enact change. I, uh, I'm with you on this. Every tool has its up and downsides. And I, I do say to folks, whether it's even Twitter, believe it or not, I think it's still incredibly valuable. It's, it's a global network of people working on interesting questions that's not replicated anywhere else you just have to dive beneath I, the polluted <laughs> surface i say i would make a joke that you're being sponsored by elon musk by no saying, i know well, everyone yeah. thinks the uh, fact that you, the fact that you've called it twitter and not x shows that this is a <laughs> i know i know <laughs> but it's like it takes work you, you know it, it, like anything useful it, it's not if you want to just be buffeted by the polluted feed of Mm -hmm. crap that elon's uh algorithms are sending your way it's there but if you want to use it productively same thing with tiktok uh it, yeah. it's there in abundance i mean i'm i'm a youtube i'm a youtube admitted youtuberholic like the amount of my life i've <laughs> dumped into that platform is is beyond insane at this point um but yeah there's if you want to you can spend an entire day watching whatever whatever video you can watch Puppies. People, puppies for day, or puppies. cats. It's like 90% of puppies and cats are 99% of YouTube. Or but even videos of people like filleting fish. Because I have friends who watch videos of this because it calms them down and they find it soothing. But <laughs> the amount of topics, I feel like I'm amazingly, well, sorry, I'm incredibly well educated on because of because it's so easy now. Every time someone mentions topics I don't understand, I can jump online and say, anything from any perspective understanding that everything that goes online doesn't isn't necessarily true um but there are so many incredible explanations science communication platforms that's like 
I feel like it's broadened my horizons. And if you use these platforms well, right. I mean, I'm, I'm not on TikTok, uh, but I feel I, I've, for my brief period of time on there, when I, I downloaded it, played for a bit, and then was like, uh, I'm yeah. not sure if I can, I'm getting to that age, I'm not sure if I can handle, I'll let, there's someone else who can do this so much better than I can, so I'll let someone else do it. Um, but from my time and what I've seen in there, even like platforms like this, some incredible young science communicators doing such a good job out there like you could if you want to it's the kind of thing like some people go on their feeds and it's just like non-stop informative science yeah the algorithm can send you in your rabbit holes and extremism and all this kind of jazz but there's good in there if it's used well yeah uh, Edie, um on that on that uh, citizen science question the work team orca is doing i assume is integrated with that to a certain extent Oh yeah, we have a very um, amazing group of uh, community members that are involved um, in collecting data for us uh, and very significantly advancing our data sets. So um, we have a pollution mapping com component where we have teams that go out quarterly to take samples so that we can get a longitudinal study of pollution coming into the lagoon at different locations and deal with some of these more esoteric um, issues like glyphosate from Roundup, um, the PFOS chemicals, the forever chemicals. Um, you know, there are just endless numbers of, of chemicals we'd like to be testing for, but we're trying to select for them. And then we have um, a fish monitoring program where people who go out and fish will contribute fish to us. And then we do um, assays on what's in their tissues. And we actually have uh, quite a large community of subsistence fishermen um, in the area who are depending on the fish from the lagoon for protein on the table. So the fact that we're finding such high levels of mercury um, in many of these fish is, is important information. Um, so the community is very much involved in now collecting that data and sharing it with the community. It makes them better stewards of the environment. I really think that in the future, the only place people are gonna to wanna to live are where communities have come together to protect their local ecosystems. And that means that they have to have this kind of science knowledge that we're able to share with them in these programs. That's great. Um, I wanted to bring up someone that I know, I think was foundational to uh, a lot of what we've been talking about. Uh, Sylvia Earle, you mentioned Mission Blue. Uh, she was up here this summer and I've, I've known Sylvia for a very long time. I first wrote about her work uh, in the Times uh, after she badgered um, Google to add the oceans to Google Earth <laughs> and successfully got them to do that. And uh, it was wonderful to have her up here. She's well into her 80s, and yet she is this just dynamic presence. Can you talk about her? Was she, is, I think I saw somewhere she was part of your journey, Edie. Oh yeah, you know, she, uh, actually, she and I go way back. Um, one of those very early expeditions I spoke about, um, I had a piece of gear that uh, was being built specifically for it, and it hadn't been delivered on time. And then it wasn't being going to get taken to the ship because of bad weather. And uh, I'm talking to my major professor on uh, over the comms. Um, and basically he's chewing me out because he spent all this time and money creating this piece of gear and it's not going to be there. And Sylvia Earle cut in on the vent, <laughs> on the, <laughs> on the radio. She was on a, a, I still remember the boat. It was called the Tomasa. Uh, and she said, well, we'll pick it up for you. <laughs> and she did. And I, I mean, she's just this dynamo, complete amazing person i you know I, I when i was with her on mission blue i well when was that um i can't even remember but it, you know she she was but well, most people would consider elderly at that point and she could out dive me i mean she, she just she's part fish and yeah. she's fearless absolutely amazing a uh, remarkable person and uh, you know Somehow, the more we can get her generation and young people together, the better off I think the oceans and um, the rest of the environment will be. 
I mean, it's there's a role in this for everyone. It's not just uh, the youngsters on TikTok. Uh, you can be. <laughs> there's lots to do. Well, yeah. it, it's, I mean, it's just, been, just, sorry. So, just wanted to add one little yeah. uh, thing as well. I mean, talking about the mix of generations in getting people excited about science. I, I mean, one thing just to kind of toot Edie's horn for a second. One of the things I love about going expeditions with Edie is. Like Edie, say being my senior, we'll go on trips and she'll be the one pulling 24-hour shifts. She'll be the one after having done an uh, eight-hour submarine dive. Uh, we'll be then sitting in a room watching another eight hours of ROV footage and then what? go back to our cabin for 20 minutes rest and then be back out for because someone wants to pull something out of the ocean and it's go, 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 go. And it's seeing people <laughs> so, so, seeing people so passionate about science regardless of your age is such an inspiration for everyone else and like seeing people who often i think especially in that world of conservation we can start to hit that kind of negative fatigue of you've been fighting these fights for so long that you kind of just lose the passion for it but people like sylvia people like Edie, people who it doesn't matter what that age is only a number right but if you love something you keep doing it uh that is, I mean, that's just as powerful as any TikTok video. Uh, that's great. Well, that's a good place for us to wrap up here on a, it's a Friday, I believe. I'm coming out of COVID zone myself. So uh, <laughs> it all has blended together. And here in Maine, the uh, the sun goes down, unlike in Florida. Uh, right now, these days, I think sunset was at 3.50 p.m. So it's already oh. dark here. <laughs> um, I'm still adjusting to life in, in down East Maine. Uh, I love it a lot uh but that aspect can be interesting <laughs> so thanks uh edie vetter and uh, nathan robinson for for uh joining me in this sustain what episode it was really useful and uh if there's anything i can do if you're doing more work with team orica if there's something to share that comes has come out if you have people in the field where they have good internet we can do a live <laughs> show from the field which i've done before with uh, a, a survey along the hudson river it was absolutely fantastic um and uh, Nathan, if you you're, if you get back out there, you're in Costa Rica right now. Uh, if there's anyone there doing something interesting, uh, we can do another show with them. What's nice about this one is it's visual. You know, you can. So thanks yeah, again definitely. for joining me today. We do we do. Uh, so I'm working on a sea turtle project, doing my other passion, and we do sea turtle excavations uh, where we hatch nests. We have a little hatchery just. 50 meters away from our station. Ah. So if you want to do a sea turtle, a live sea turtle excavation, and we can dig up some nests and potentially rescue some sea turtles, uh, we could organize that. Let's do it. Let's do it. It's a good good way for me to get out of my cabin. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks again. Thanks again to both of you. Take care. Okay. Pleasure. Just, Take care. For anyone watching, this gets share. This gets archived right away. As soon as we're done, you can share the link you've been watching on. Uh, and or it's also on X, <laughs> Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube. I see there was some nice uh, input from folks. Lee Carpenter Mitchell. I don't know if he's one of the people there in Costa Rica, but he's been watching uh, throughout. Uh, Carolina, Carolina Miriam San, Santoro Perez is watching. And uh, <laughs> Ken Peterson and more. So thanks again. Take care. Ciao. Adios.